Occupation? Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Welcome to the third encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Crittenden. What's up, Jack? Not much. What's up with you? <laughs> Not too much. As I was just telling you, I just got back from my first dose of the COVID vaccine. Um, so that was my exciting moment of the day. Did you get vaccinated yet? I forget. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so I'm fully? not only am, uh, fully vaccinated, but past the two week waiting period. Wow. So you're able to really commingle with the oh, unwashed masses party like it's 19 no 2000 no oh fuck <laughs> yeah party party time i'm still yeah i'm still uh, hesitant you probably yeah. have heard or read that uh the bio lab at the bio design institute at asu discovered a variant in arizona that appears to be highly resistant to Fuck. the vaccine. I, I did not. I did not hear that. Yeah. Actually, this is the first I'm hearing that. So it's it's great news that our governor has repealed the mask mandate and decided that he's proud of Arizonans acting responsibly. Well, through the full year, he said, <laughs> which I don't yeah. know how many how many deaths did we have? 40,000 dead in Arizona. Oh, it was obscene. I mean, we were the highest. We were the global hotspot for some weeks, I think. That's just, and it's and that shameful. was a direct result of his, I think back when I used Twitter more, I think I called it a, a crime against humanity. You know, I was trying to, trying to publicly shame Ducey, not that he has any shame. Yeah. Uh, you have to have a soul and a heart to be shamed. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'm still being cautious. Uh, it's going to take me a little bit. I, I had my first outing with a human being in person, uh, which was okay. <laughs> he also yeah. is fully vaccinated. Oh, good. Uh, but you so, still maintain distance and things like that? Or, as as no? best we could. Yeah. Wore masks until food came. Then we ate, uh, walked around a bit, wore masks then. But had a server who's 36 years old and will not get the vaccine and hates wearing a mask. Uh, 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 it's maddening to me. Uh, it's yeah. beyond maddening. And well, but, but like you, I will continue wearing the mask. I'm going to continue to be cautious for probably forever, <laughs> to be honest with you. The mask has many benefits. I was reading today, you know, which is sort of straightforward. The mask reduces allergens, right? So if you have like spring allergies, which I yes, do. And I do as well. Yeah. So there, and not to mention, you know, uh, reducing flu transmission in the fall. So I think masks will be a permanent feature of life. Maybe not all the time like they are during the pandemic, but I'm certainly going to keep keep a hold of mine. Yeah, it seems it seems to be, I don't want to call it a habit, but I think it's close to that in certain Asian countries Yes, where they, uh, they wear masks. But before the pandemic, they were wearing masks and that seems prudent. But you're right. Uh, you, you may also have heard or read that 
flu incidences went way down yes. this year. And part of that, of course, is, is mask wearing. Yeah, that's great. And uh, yeah, I guess that's one small silver lining. But oh, well, I'm glad that you told me about that, uh, that very, strain because I was yeah. sort of, uh, you know, feeling gung-ho. And yeah. Now, well, bear in mind, they have discovered 15 cases in Arizona. I think one in New Mexico and one in Texas. But mm. uh, the fact that it exists, it's in the state and it's resistant to vaccines is not a good sign. No, that's not, that's not great news. <laughs> no, it's not. So let's have some good news. Yes, yes. Well, uh, you know, we ended the, the chat last time broaching the topic of psych psychedelics. So we can right. pick up there if we want and sure. run with it. Okay, cool. Well, uh, that's good because in the intervening, you know, two weeks or whatever, since we last spoke, I actually consumed some psychedelics. Uh, I took a, took a, what they call a heroic dose of mushrooms. Uh, now, did you take it in mushroom form? Oh yeah. Or did you take it in the synthetic form? Uh, it was real mushrooms. Yeah. Totally organic and just raw. Um, so I actually, <laughs> I did, uh, I kind of did mixed methods with the consumption. So I had these raw mushrooms that I've been hanging on to for some time, <laughs> Um, and, and to be clear, this was not like strictly recreational. Like I had been hanging on to these mushrooms. I, and we can talk about like the certain, you know, I went into it with certain intentions and things like this. Um, but so it was more therapeutic, uh, than anything else. But what I did was something called lemon teching. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No one no, seems not. to have ever heard of that, <laughs> but me, and I found out about it online. Uh, but it's, it's very simple. You just crush the mushrooms up and dump some fresh uh, lemon juice, like squeeze a lemon, squeeze the juice onto the mushrooms. Supposedly, the science behind it is that the citric acid begins to activate, uh, you know, the psychoactive ingredients in the mushrooms, much like your stomach acid would. So you, you let that fester for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then you... Uh, then you take it like a shot. So the reasoning for that right. is because is that it intensifies but shortens the effects, uh, the duration. So I did half of that, and then I just chewed up the other half. I took about six and a half grams all told, um, which is not an enormous amount, but fairly decent. Um, so yeah, but it was uh, it was a pretty profound pretty profound experience. And uh, I'm feeling, I don't know if it's still just an afterglow or if I have really um, experienced some therapeutic effects from it, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, I got to say, since I took them. Well, there, there is definitely an, an afterglow, which um, trippers, <laughs> uh, it, psychonauts right. describe. So that's not surprising. Were you, so you went in with an intention. How long did your experience last, would you say? Uh, I think it was about three hours of, three to four hours of pretty intense effects. And then maybe two to three further hours of tapering down with dwindling effects. And then, so I took them at about 5 p.m. And by, by the time I was about ready to go to bed at 11 or so, it was pretty much over. 
yeah. from what I could tell. Now there was probably were still subtle effects going on, but yeah. I just kind of dozed off, you know. And how many days since you you uh, ate the mushrooms? Uh, I have my notebook here. I journaled uh, throughout the experience. <laughs> it's like, have you ever seen oh, uh, money? Good. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah, it was helpful. It really was helpful. And then it stopped being helpful as I just started blubbering and, and blathering. But have you seen Monty Python's Holy Grail? I'm sure you have. Yes, I have. Okay. I don't know if you'll remember this obscure scene where they're in the cave with the rabbit that jumps at your right. neck. Yeah, and they're reading. People. Yeah, they're reading the scrawl on the wall. And he, he it's like it's some it's legible and then it trails off into ah. <laughs> And then it shows that a monster has come and eaten the guy and he's written ah, as he's being eaten. Okay. That's what I felt like as I was journaling, very sophisticated, full, you know, complete sentences, paragraphs at the beginning, and then just ah, by the, <laughs> by the end. But I, to answer your question, I took them on uh, the 24th. The 24th. So a week ago. Yes. Yeah, I guess uh, exactly a week ago. A week ago. Well, it's good you're still feeling some after effects. The, uh, one of the problems with consuming uh, mushrooms is that you, you can't control dosage very well. Because, you, I mean, in other words, you're, you're measuring the weight of the mushrooms. Right. But you can't measure the, the content of the, the psychoactive property in the mushrooms. <laughs> right. You don't know how strong it's necessarily right. going to be. It's an or estimate. how weak. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you don't really know. So therapeutically, if you're if you're looking at the studies at say Johns Hopkins, they're giving uh, clients, we'll call them, <laughs> about 400 milligrams of psilocybin. Right. That's pure. That's, yeah, that's a whopping good dose because they. <laughs> but but that is the level they they've established. That is, I don't want to call it optimum, but because it, I think it depends in some senses on the person, each individual. But that uh, is a pretty good dosage for people who want to who want to go internal. Yeah. So they have they have some some sense that this is a very good dosage for turning you inside. Uh, just so you know, and the afterglow. Just a, one comment about your afterglow. Mm. If you decided you wanted to to microdose psilocybin or LSD, <laughs> it's, uh, the dosage is going to depend upon your own constitution. So, but you're not taking a lot, let's mm. say five milligrams or 10, 10 milligrams. The dosage is usually uh, one day on and three days off, mm. right? And then one day on three days off. And they find that, that uh, that's about what people not only tolerate, but, but enjoy, right? So you have that the, the, the two day span. So you're, you're on it the day you microdose and then two days after that, and then you do it again on the, on the fourth day. Uh, that appears to be optimum for people, right? Because they do, they do have that, that afterglow. And I guess the effects from what I've read last about a month after about a month, the returns begin to diminish appreciably. Really? Yeah. Which is, Okay, I mean that makes sense. And then maybe you wait. I don't know how long you wait—a year, a month for you, a day. <laughs> you go back <laughs> to microdosing. But it makes uh, the reason I mentioned that is it makes sense for your experience with the afterglow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I uh, 
I, until, until this very moment, I have not um, sort of analyzed uh, how I've been feeling since the trip. So in the sense yeah. of whether it is, whether it's an afterglow or not, I just have, I just have not, not thought about that. And I'm, I'm sure that there is some element of that, but I'm hoping also that there's some um, more lasting effects. And I think that there will be because of how I approached the experience going in with certain intentions. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty heavy trip uh, and, and like deliberately so, um, but, you know, I spent, I spent half of it. It was a, yeah, spent half of it crying and half of it laughing. We'll put it that way, but it was a, a, a tremendous release, I think, of some negative emotions that I had been carrying. That for me was a very valuable experience and one that I have not uh, intentionally conducted with psychedelic drugs before. So was was it your intention to to get in touch with, if not root out, those feelings? Yes, yes, it was. Uh, I had sort of three main focuses that I uh, wanted to explore, sort of internally, you know, as I went into it. And uh, two of them were related to sort of grief, you know, grief uh, from my grandmother's death a little over a year ago. Uh, grief from a relationship that I was in that, that recently ended. And then the third topic was, uh, was different. And it was more so about my work, my research, my interests, and especially my writing, trying to get some creative, you know, generative ideas, juices flowing for the dissertation and everything. And it was successful on all fronts, which was nice. Okay, I may have misunderstood. You're not linking grief with your uh, getting creative juices flowing, or was I, it? Is actually, I am um, a little indirectly, but I mean, I, like my, I don't know how it is for you uh, in your writing, but like a lot of my writing flows more from an emotional place than an intellectual place, uh, which I mean. Obviously, it's like intellectual work, but like my motivation and my uh, sort of desire, I guess, to write tends to come from an emotional place. So tapping into that stuff, even if it's indirectly, you know, from a different um, from a different issue can be helpful for me as a thinker, as a writer. Do you write? with music on almost never have you tried it i have i tend to find it distracting more distracting than helpful i will use music for brainstorming for outlining sometimes even for reading although not as often um the only thing that i can listen to when i write is jazz and actually, I listened to some jazz during this trip. Uh, Did you? I have I have a couple of questions. I, I hope you don't mind that I'm asking no, go, you these questions. Yeah, go for it. That's why I brought it up. I and mean, if okay. there's something, so, if I feel uncomfortable, I'll just tell you. I don't. I don't think I'm going to ask you anything that make you uncomfortable. But I was wondering if you've been able to associate kinds of music with the emotional state that you find yourself most 
uh, productive in, most creative in. Mm-hmm. And it might be jazz, in which case maybe having it on low in the background would be helpful because it might not only generate a mood, it might help sustain the mood that allowed you to be creative. That, that's why I asked about the music. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there's definitely some element of that, but I have found that when I really sit down to write, it's like everything else gets pushed out and I'm 100% on the page. And I want to eliminate everything that could even remotely distract me from that. I don't know. You know, it's just like a hyper focus. Can, can you, can you, um, do you get into that hyper focus voluntarily? Does it happen uh, through inspiration that you, you get a moment when you're flooded with that kind of, of, of feeling and you say, okay, now I have to write. Or can you sit down and generate that, that feeling? Both, I think. Although when it's organic and authentic, uh, then it's more, it's a, it's a little bit different. So in other words, like let's say I'm taking a class and I have a final paper due and maybe I'm only moderately interested in the material. I can sit down and put myself into that state of mind where I can, you know, get that focus. Um, but if it's something that I, that is independently interesting to me, which can also be coursework, you know, but uh, typically it's more idiosyncratic, like pertaining to my research interests and things, then what, then it comes from inspiration. I think it's sort of like, I have an idea. I feel like oftentimes I have a conclusion and it's like, I can see it off in the distance in my mind and all of a sudden I want to like draw, like draw the map, which is the writing, yeah. if that, to the destination, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Well, there are people who literally map out their work. I mean, they do mind maps, brain maps, project maps. You're literally doing a map of, of getting from where you are to where you want to go yes. intellectually or, or cognitively. Uh, so I, I was just interested if you have to wait for inspiration or you can create it. That's what I was curious about. Yeah, it's a little bit of both, I think. And it kind of, I think the best way to create it for me is is somewhat indirectly. It's like, if I'm just, the cat's in the cupboard. Um, If I'm reading material uh, that interests me, then eventually after one book, two books, three books, articles, whatever, something is going to, pop up that intrigues me, challenges me, whatever. And I'm going to have to, uh, and I'm going to have to write about it. Yeah. Okay. So now linking back to the drug, had you found yourself in some kind of uh, fallow period where you weren't producing, you didn't feel creative and you needed to kind of jumpstart that? What, what was the, what, what was going on with you on the creative side? that would lead you to, to link it with, with grief? Yeah, that's a big question. I think, uh, I think the short answer is yes, at least a partial yes to what you're saying. Um, I have felt a little, um, I guess we'll just say writer's block, whatever, just some blockages. And I think those, those are not, that was not really like at like totally abstract. It was directly related 
to the other issues that I mentioned, especially I think the grief related to my grandmother um, that was just consuming a lot of mental resources, uh, maybe that I sure. didn't, didn't necessarily realize, you know? Yeah. So, but then like more, more abstractly or like academically, there is, you know, my, my interests, the, the interest in the human predicament in the Anthropocene is grief inducing. Like it's brutal to be focused on this material, you know, and, and it's yeah. not just me, like you may have read articles or I think there have even been studies now of, of climate scientists who are just extraordinarily depressed <laughs> because they know what's happening and they know the disconnect between, you know, pers- the, per- the what's happening and the perception of what's happening. And of course, policy measures uh, to address what's happening and there people are beginning to feel hopeless. So when you're mainlining, you know, uh, human extinction for a couple of years, <clears throat> it takes a toll on you. Yeah, I can I can imagine that's the case. Uh, we haven't really talked about your your dissertation, your your intellectual endeavors. That's true. Uh, and maybe we can circle back to that if we've if we've completed the circle on the on the psychedelics. Well, there may be a bridge there, which we don't necessarily have to spend much time on, but um, the Extinction Rebellion movement, of which I was a significant part in New York, um, began in the UK, and there are two primary co-founders, one of whom, Gail Bradbrook, uh, was motivated to begin XR, Extinction Rebellion, as a result of an uh, experience uh, taking ayahuasca uh, and she in either somewhere in South America, maybe Peru, probably, I don't know, but she's written about this and spoken about this extensively. And she has, uh, she, the short, the short story is basically she had, you know, was interested in environmental stuff and, uh, and climate stuff and was feeling a little um, feeling like things weren't getting accomplished. The message wasn't getting through whatever. And so she went down to take this ayahuasca and her intention going into it was basically discovering a message, you know, tell me, tell me what to do. Uh, tell me how to, how to, how to do this, you know, to the plant gods or whatever. And, uh, and so that was, that was half the genesis of the movement right there. And the other half? The other half was Roger Hallam, who's a British um, activist and academic. He was working on his PhD somewhere, I think maybe King's College or some university in England. And he was studying uh, like protest movements, social justice, resistance movements, nonviolent especially. So obviously Martin Luther King and and many others. Um, And as he was turning to write his dissertation, I think that's when he uh, linked his pre-existing interest to climate activism to his academic research and said, here we go. Well, I can construct a, at least a vision of a nonviolent direct action, uh, you know, decentralized global movement that is explicitly political, explicitly revolutionary, 
And uh, although almost, this is now me speaking, (laughs) although almost certainly doomed to failure, uh, nevertheless, the steps from A to Z are there. So it's the right prescription for the right problem, even if it, you know, will never succeed. But it did succeed significantly in, in raising consciousness and even in a few policy measures, including, uh, you know, I'm most proud of the New York City chapter's success in prompting the New York City Council to adopt a climate emergency resolution. Um, our, our organization was, was directly uh, sort of responsible for agitating for that. And, and indeed, we helped draft the language of that, of that bill. Congratulations. Thank that you. Sounds, that sounds like a victory. Yeah. But, you're, bad. but your position now is that we cannot save the planet. Uh, well, I would, I mean, saving the planet is something we would have to deconstruct right up, up front, you know, like, what does that even mean? But, but yeah, I mean, my position, and did you read that uh, Dreisick book, Politics of the Anthropocene? Because I think you recommended it to me originally. I did. Yes. I, I did recommend it to you. I did, did not you read, read it. it. Okay. I did not. Okay. That's fine. But I was just curious because like uh, he, that was influential in some of the language that he, he and his co-author use in that text I have found helpful in speaking with others. Um, but yeah, I mean, my position is that uh, there are certain, there's a certain level of inertia that is baked into the, the earth system and uh, that the consequences of that inertia are currently playing out and will continue to play out even if, you know, we flipped a switch and stopped all carbon emissions tomorrow. And obviously that's not going to happen. So that's, that's sort of my, that's one of the motivating factors for me is, is it's just a deep recognition of how futile so many of the little sort of nibbling around the edges efforts that are being promoted as like, you know, oh, everybody gets a Tesla and then we'll save, you know, we'll stop climate change. Like, no, <laughs> no, I wish. But yeah, so that's, and, and that ends up, you know, people, there's different camps and of, uh, of activists and schools of thought. And some folks associate the position I'm articulating with like the so-called doomerist, doomerism uh, position. But I don't really identify with that because it's too nihilistic. Um, so just like, people mistake Nietzsche for being a nihilist instead of an anti-nihilist, right? I'm kind of in the same boat. I'm like, yeah, shit's fucked, <laughs> but I'm not, uh, I'm not nihilistic about it. But you're not hopeful. No, no, I'm not. I mean, no. I, I just, I, I feel like I know with some certainty that there's going to be, you know, catastrophic population decrease uh, in the next few decades. And that's, that's just going to happen. In yeah, my view, yeah. You know. <laughs> well, I know that for the rest of my life, uh, which is if, if nature is having its way, should be shorter than your life, <laughs> uh, is is going to be 
for the planet, it's going to be shit. Things, as you say, if you stopped, if we stopped emitting carbon now, what is going to occur over the next, how long, 50 years, 100 years? Right. It is not going to change. No. No, we literally cannot affect that right. at this point. The window, right. what do they call it in physics? The event horizon. We the event horizon. The event horizon. Right. And it's going to be bad. Uh, and just as you said, I mean, we're seeing this already across the globe with droughts, famine, fire, floods, hurricanes, earthquakes, it's, it's tornadoes. It's, it's, uh, and we're seeing it in, in Central America. Right. One reason people are fleeing from Central America. Yes. But, you know, I, I suppose the, the hope, the hope is that, that when we, well, it's not, it's not going to make a difference. I mean, even if we could put up, what's the, what's it called? Um, I can't remember the term for shading the sun. Oh yeah. What yeah. The Montgomery that? Burns first proposed that on an episode of the Simpsons yeah. a couple of decades ago. <laughs> well, they're prescient. Those writers are prescient. <laughs> they but really there, are. There is that it's something it's, it's like, I can't remember bioengineering. It's, it's got some term to it. I don't remember yes, what it's called. It's, uh, well, there's terraforming. Uh, if that's, that's, that's about the surface of the planet primarily. And then there's geoengineering. Geoengineering, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, so that the sunshade, to be honest with you, a sunshade is one of the, the crazy ideas that I would be more inclined to support if it's, a, if it's a material object, because that can be blown up if it fails. Bill Gates, for example, has recently been talking about like blasting sulfur into the atmosphere. Well, you can't put that back in the fucking bag. And, right. <laughs> you know, and like the, it, we have no clue if that would actually not only achieve its intended goal, but what sort of knock on effects that might have in a complex system when you introduce, you know, a novel element <laughs> into an atmosphere. It's just it's insanity, but it speaks to the desperation and the now the now public desperation well, uh, he- that we're facing. Yeah, you should investigate whether he's not uh, involved in a startup of some kind of huge cosmic vacuum cleaner <laughs> that if he blasts the sulfur in, into the atmosphere, he can then go suck it up if it's not working out. Right, right. Capitalists make you sick and then sell you the cure. And yeah. It's the classic maneuver. Perfect. So uh, I suppose short of any kind of technological miracle, like the geoengineering. Yes. Uh it's it's just going to be a shitstorm after shitstorm for the next century. Oh, I think much longer than that, or or longer. For, yeah, for on any time scale that matters to our species, uh, it it's it's over. Um, you know, you have to. Uh, it's like I keep thinking like I need to come up with like a a three minute talk, a five minute talk, a ten minute talk that can explain everything. But there's just so much to try and condense it or compress it down but i i guess it just helps to remember the brevity of our species existence in the face of geological time and to remember also the very brief window in which the unique planetary conditions in which we evolved have existed 
Like we get fucked up by ice ages, you know, like just, just generic naturally occurring stuff. Now, uh, you know, the, the, uh, concentration of carbon in the atmosphere is exceeding levels, uh, that predate our evolutionary emergence. It's about to, uh, these, these levels are about to exceed, you know, they, they wanted 300 parts per million. That was our target. Then 350, Bill McKibben has this organization, 350.org. I love Bill McKibben. He has supported Extinction Rebellion, but I don't know how a guy that smart working on this stuff for as long as he has, uh, is so fucking delusional. (laughs) Uh, cause I, like, I haven't checked the numbers recently, but we're, we're on, we're on pace blow past 350 parts per million 400 parts is is the is the dream at this point so uh so point being like you said 100 years or whatever no it's it's forever now well no wonder you're getting high (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah well, I mean, it's easy to fall into that. It's easy. And there, there are periods where I just kind of think like, eh, fuck it. What's it matter? Um, but, you know, then that's also how like philosophy and things help to sustain me because I go back to those writers and thinkers that have expressed sentiments that I share and I can commiserate you know, and it's not, and also comedians too, the good ones like Carlin. Uh, I actually used a a lengthy clip from George Carlin in a presentation I gave at teacher's college. Uh, Did I tell you about this? I can't remember. No. Yeah. So I gave a talk in like March, 2018 or something. Uh, I was invited by John Broughton uh, to do that at teacher's college. Was this the one that was videotaped? Yeah, it I was saw? recorded. I saw this, I think. I don't oh, remember. Oh, okay. The... I wasn't right? sure. It was... Yeah, you did it in a in a class. It was a small room, yep. Like an hour and a half, something it, like that. Yep, probably close to two, but yeah. Okay. I don't remember the Carlin clip, which I think <laughs> I might. You probably glazed. That was intermission for you. <laughs> but... I like Carlin. Love Carlin. But yeah, the point being is that he has this incredible bit from a 1993 special, I think. It was recorded in New York. And he talks about how, I mean, the, the punchline, basically, he says, the planet is fine, the people are fucked. <laughs> and, uh, but he, but later also in his life, towards the end of his life, he gave a great interview to like ABC 2020 or some shit. And uh, he talks about his own personal uh, position on society and things like this. And he says, he's like, I've reached a point now in my life where I, I'm just an observer. He said, I'm just, I have no stake in the outcome. I'm just, I'm just observing. And, uh, and I, uh, that resonates with me. So there's, I think there's something to that that works for me anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I don't envy you. No wonder your creativity's dried up. No wonder you've got writer's block. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, the topic, I suppose what I would like to see from you, here's what I want to see from you, Rory. I'm going to give you the outline. Okay. Tell me. <laughs> uh, you need a short story or maybe even maybe even a novel length 
where you lay out how bad it's going to be, what it's going to look like, how bad it's going to be, what are the unfolding natural catastrophes, Mm. and accompanying those, the political, economic, and social disruptions, dislocations, and horrors that will be visited on us over the next 20, 30, 50, 100 years. (laughs) <laughs> yes, and light reading, bedtime reading. Well, no, but it, I, yes, that's right. But I think that's the context for then what you say to people, which is the human cockroach. <laughs> it, it is it may be have a survival instinct strong enough to get us through the most horrendous circumstances. So that people, the species will survive, but maybe in a form or conditions that that we are going to imagine in its most horrific. That's what you're doing. But then you're going to say, how can you live? not, Not just how can you survive, but how can you live in those kinds of conditions? That right. seems to me to be a really worthwhile project. Well, yes. And so I think I agree. And I'll tell you where I, it's not that I don't agree, but in terms of uh, limiting myself, right? That's part of the difficulty also with the writing process for a topic like this is that it's so capacious. Sure. It's like, it's, it's everything forever, <laughs> right? right? And so you have to drill down. And that's why I really settled on that framing device which I think I told you about of a consideration about having a child. Yeah. Because that puts the focus almost to a needle point. And it's also extremely relatable to almost everybody. Um, So, and then from there I can flow outwards into the consideration of whichever key topics like you were just describing that I want to delve into. And I think another maneuver that I'm going to make is to, is to, uh, it's somewhat counterintuitive, or I think it will, it will seem counterintuitive or confusing to some people, which is to say that I'm not going to argue. I'm not necessarily going to make the case that this is what's going to happen. That's my premise. This shit is going to happen. How then, as you were just saying, how then do we live in the face of what is going to happen. That's, that's uh, the sort of the framing that I want to approach it with in part because I'm not a climate scientist, right? So I'm not, right. I don't quite have the same facility with the science as, uh, as an ecologist might. Um, and so I want to, I want to get straight to the, the human condition, right? And the social, psychological, political, um, and moral uh, concerns that will come about uh, as a result of of this trajectory that we're on, which I think I think as you were pr- seeming to allude to, although I use the word extinction, and I I'm not uh, I I definitely think it's a possibility that humans could go completely extinct like the dodo. I think it's more likely that a few cockroaches will keep scurrying around. <laughs> for some time. And instead, we'll end up with a, a vastly reduced population by orders of magnitude, which is also not unprecedented in human evolutionary history. There was an incident several 
several tens of thousands of years ago, I think, in human history, where the human population was reduced to something like 500 mating pairs, a thousand adults on the entire planet. And we survived that, uh, you know, barely, but that's a, that's a near extinction event. That's extremely close to a point where you would lose genetic diversity and things like this. So I, I can imagine something like that coming about, or maybe even more, more people than that surviving, but still 100,000 people compared to 8 billion that we have yeah. right now is, yeah. is almost unimaginable. Well, good luck. <laughs> good luck with that. Thank you. But I do, I, my concern about any work, those yeah, are my dogs, does. which have just <laughs> distracted me. Um, my concern about almost any work that's even touching on these topics won't establish the context well enough, won't describe what we're facing what we're going to what we're going to be seeing over the next 20 50 100 years yes. how bad this is going to be uh it, it, so that's the now that isn't to say that you are you are like the writers of the simpsons you are prescient and will know what is going to occur but you have a, you have an idea of what could occur within your mind and given what you've studied, what you've seen, what you're thinking about. And that's why I said, I would like to see you paint almost novelistically what this environment is gonna be like. And then how do people live, can people live well within that? That's what I'm curious about. And I think that's what, what you were just saying. Uh, how, how do we address this? How, how do we maintain some sense of humanity in these kinds of conditions. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, uh, two things, I guess. The first is that the, in, in the sense of like predictions, there are some people, even some, you know, uh, people who I respect and, and that I think are uh, well-versed on this topic, who like to make rather specific predictions. And I don't do that. I don't like to do that. I think it's, first of all, I just think that's a mistake to even try to do that. Like, oh, by 2020, or excuse me, 2030, everybody is going to be dead or something crazy like that. Um, but my approach to predictions is more about foresight, what I would call foresight. So it's, a, it's just a more generalized, it's like you can see the thrust the direction in which right. we're going, you know, right. you can extrapolate from that and right. make reasonable, you know. So, and I'm and I know, I'm not saying that you were implying that I'm making these precise predictions. I'm just putting that out there for folks listening, um, because and this is also where that Dreisick book comes in handy. He has this term uh, that he uses called that he calls pathological path dependency. So there's a there's a concept called path dependency which is basically where you start influences where you are and where you're going, you know, pretty straightforward, like drops on a windowsill tend to follow the same path, right? That kind of thing. Uh, and then once it becomes pathological, uh, it tends to uh, be in a situation where it's 
deviating from its original original purpose, right? So the institutions, for example, that we've created to establish order no longer maintain order the way that they were supposed to, or the, the, the justice department is the injustice department. I'm being simplifying it. Okay, so if you understand, if you look at the trajectory of things through that kind of lens, I think it's actually quite easy to guess the general direction in which we're headed. And yeah, then the question becomes, if indeed we go over those waterfalls, how, how will we be able to live, you know, communally right. under those right. circumstances, if at all, right? I don't right. know that we have, like, you know, we can't, we don't really have much insight from prehistory on this topic, right? So like Hobbes, you know, is not going to help us in my view. I think Hobbes is wrong. I mean, he has a lot of good to say, right? But, but neither is Rousseau, I think, necessarily going to help us in understanding the quote-unquote state of nature that we may descend into. Right. Because those are fictions uh, that are created uh, in significant part based on assumptions from those thinkers, uh, historical contingencies, right? Right. So I, I don't fucking know. I mean, but that's also, that's where like the sort of the political theory element for me comes in as I was just gesturing toward like, uh, it's sort of a utopian, it's like a utopian view of dystopia <laughs> that, I, that I'm interested in pursuing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, an excellent way to describe it. And I'm completely with you on this idea that you were just, just uh, laying out which is given where we are now and the predictions that we've seen, we can extrapolate on what is going to be happening. And it's just going to be an intensification of what we've seen. So we can imagine, for example, that the temperatures in Arizona are going to rise and continue rising, that water uh, is going to be a problem in the West, that things in Central America because of the climate and because of governmental structures are not gonna get better. There are gonna be mass migrations across the globe because of droughts, famines, fires, uh, floods. And what is that gonna mean? So just as you say, you extrapolate from where we are, where we're going to be, and then say, what is it we, we need to know? Right. About human beings in extreme conditions, how people respond, how people behave. Uh, and, and what's terrifying about that is we have some sense of what that's going to mean because we can also extrapolate not just about where the climate, where the environment will be, but where people will be. We're seeing this right now in yeah. reaction to, to migration. Right? And, uh, COVID. COVID and COVID. COVID for me, that was really a death knell in any lingering optimism that I had left. Uh, not, not that COVID itself is like an extinction level event, although pandemics are certainly uh, can be catastrophic threats to a species, but it's the failure of cooperative action, right. even for even the most minute cooperative action of wearing a fucking mask. Right. <laughs> like, 
it's hopeless. Like, let's be real, you know, <laughs> short of, I mean, and that's in a sense, that's all I have to admire the Chinese response of throwing people in their apartments and welding their doors shut. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a fan of like re political repression, but you know, I kind of, I have, I have had an impulse to throw people behind locked doors here in Arizona and elsewhere, you know, uh, in the yeah. face of this. This, this race is a question for me, which I wrote down. Oh, nice. That I wanted, uh, that I thought maybe we could discuss last, last session, last encounter, but we never got to it. So I'm going to read it. <laughs> Do it. Uh, because I'm really, I'm really curious about what you think about this. So here's the question. Okay. Oh, hang on. <laughs> Throw your spectacles on. Yeah. Okay. So I want you to imagine that we can establish a beneficent world dictator, <laughs> a person or quite possibly a woman <laughs> whose sole focus is human flourishing. Yep. Of giving every person on the planet a decent life. Is that an acceptable idea? <laughs> Is it a good idea? And especially thinking about it in, in terms of um, climate change. Yeah. I think it's a great question. I feel like I, I, you, you just gave me one of your classic essay prompts. <laughs> when's this due <laughs> I never die you, you never escape me Rory no no I can't escape but no I mean it, it is a great question and there is some discourse on this uh I'm not super familiar with that discourse so I'll just give you my original thinking but there is a there is a strain of thought that says um the response to the planetary uh environmental and ecological situation is to implement uh benevolent eco-fascism Right. And to right. say to organize things with an iron fist in order to uh, sort of from a utilitarian perspective, help the most people survive, you know. Uh, but that's not quite what you're asking. Um, and like I said, I'm not super familiar with that discourse anyway, because it just rubs me the wrong way. But my thought would be, you know, my first thought when you were saying that uh, was to go to the philosopher king. Right. right. Exactly. Think, yeah. And to yeah. think about that. And for, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this concept, the philosopher king is an idea or philosopher queen is an idea that comes out of Plato's Republic, where he establishes that philosophers should rule societies and that until you have philosophers ruling, you will never have justice. Definitely not self-serving on Plato's part at all. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> but yeah. And what's the line? It's like until philosophers until philosophers rule as kings or kings philosophize, you'll never have justice. Never city, justice right? right. And uh, so my thought, it, it's interesting, actually, you know, <laughs> I got asked a similar question. I'm just now remembering I was on a panel um, at an Earth Day celebration at this very sort of avant-garde bohemian nightclub in Brooklyn <laughs> called the House of Yes. Um, and their whole thing is consent. And it's like, everything goes as long as everyone says yes, you know? Uh, 
So a lot of like sexual liberation and all this kind of stuff, but they also do these interesting daytime events and festivals and, and panels or whatever. Point being, I was on this panel with a, a guy I met through Extinction Rebellion um, and who became a friend of mine while I was in New York named Daniel Pinchbeck, who's a writer and he writes about psychedelics and he's a smart guy. Um, and he asked me something similar, like something like if I was president, what would I do or something? And I didn't have much of an answer for him. Um, and, and I feel somewhat similar about the question you've posed. My fear is, part of it is that like, we really need to be more humble. <laughs> like, I don't think that any human, even a, even a king-like global figure could implement policies or queen-like could implement the right policies that would solve this problem. In other words, I believe it exceeds our capacities. I think it exceeds our capacities to ameliorate as well as to even comprehend. Uh, certainly for, for a vast majority of the population, um, a significant number of whom deny the very existence of climate change, you know, altogether. So, Nevertheless, if it were feasible, would I go for it? Because I can hear you asking me that already. <laughs> yeah. is, it a, is it a good idea? Is it an acceptable idea? Yeah. And the, I, I honestly don't know. I'm a little split both ways because I want to say, I want to say that it could be done benevolently and humanely. But then one of the issues that I think comes up is how does that arrangement affect the human beings that are living under it? Not So let's say we can solve all the climate stuff, all the material conditions or whatever. Are we creating servants under this arrangement, almost obedient, you know, hyper obedient slaves that must comply with like, micro level dictates about their very lives, you know, in order to fulfill the policy outcomes that would actually produce the solution to this. And if so, what are we saving at that point? Are we, you know, we're we saving right. brains in a vat, you know, I, I don't know. So that's my thoughts right off the top of the head. I don't know if you have any feedback to that, but it's a great question. We can definitely keep talking about it. Uh, well, there are two levels in which this operates, it seems to me. The first is the level of the environment. If you had someone with a, a benevolent despot with the power to end all carbon emissions tomorrow, then there would be the psychological, political, social, moral, economic adjustments to a to countries that were no longer using carbon. Carbon was out, outlawed and the punishments would be severe. Now, of course, enforcing them would be, uh, we're just imagining, right? That they can be enforced. Okay, then, then the issue shifts from the level of the environment down to the level of social interaction. And uh, if, if the benevolent despot's goal is not, it is, human flourishing 
the, the greatest possible human flourishing for the greatest number of people on the planet, which would be everybody. Then you would have to convene uh, people who could think about the serious problems that would arise. So I have read or heard somewhere that you could fit every single person on the planet in the state of Texas and each person, man, woman, and child would have 400 square feet. Okay. Okay. Now, if that's possible, that means that there's plenty of land available around the globe for people. Number right. one. Number two, I've also read that that there is no problem feeding well every inhabitant, every earthling. Right. We just don't have the political will to do it because of the various economic systems and political systems we're in, we're involved in. Right. It's a it's a distribution problem, not a not a production problem. Not a production problem. Right. So, if this is true across the board, then we can talk seriously about creating equality of conditions for all beings on the planet. And if you could, if, if, if your goal as the benevolent despot was to create human flourishing for all, all beings, then we're, then we would talk about those kinds of issues. Mm. Now there would be clearly there would be pushback because as, a, as we've seen across the globe, as, as migration increases, as people are driven from their homes for political and, and climactic reasons, we see that, that they are uh, not welcome in many places. And yeah. it, it, it's creating havoc, it's us against them. That would have to be met with force. Okay, so now- <laughs> Including in Texas. <laughs> yes, especially in Texas, yeah. in the People's Republic of Texas. So. Now we're talking about ways that that could be managed. I think it could be. Psychedelics might be part of it. <laughs> Microdosing yeah. might be part of it. But now we're into George, not George, well, we're Huxley. into Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Soma. Right. Soma, w- right. which uh, it wouldn't be used to distract people. It would be used uh, in, under certain conditions to... Uh, instill certain kinds of behaviors, but mm. short term. I mean, all of this is contingent <laughs> on the idea that you have a benevolent despot. Right. Now, of course, the problem with that notion is that we understand this seductive nature of power and right. Lord Acton's apothem, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Plato's way out of this is to say, <laughs> the philosopher king knows the truth, has seen the good, knows the good, and can only through ignorance veer from it. Right. Okay. So uh, as, as speculative fiction, it's fun to think about it. I think it could be done. I think it could actually be done. Uh, in other yes. words, I, I think we have policies and plans in mind that could be implemented, that could I don't know if it would save the planet, but it could make people's lives tolerable and maybe even good lives. Yeah. Uh, if you're willing, if you can surpass political conflict, if you can, if you can introduce M- Marx's formula, right? <laughs> so Marx's view was that what communism was, was an ideal system because uh, conflict would end. 
And when conflict, this was in, with, within a certain society, when conflict would end, politics would end. And when politics would end, the state would end. You don't right. need the state. You have government, but that's different for Marx from the state. So the question is, are there plans, projects in, in mind that we could put in place that would allow this to happen? <laughs> uh, and then would we want it to? Yes. Right? Well, you've, you've anticipated where I was going to go, it, which is to, because there's a problem for me with the idea of, a, of an individual person as the, as the philosopher king or queen, right? But if we shift the sort of like the locus of authority from an individual to something like the dictatorship of the proletariat at first, at least, so that it's a, a more collective implementation of these things. Because my concern is, is that if it's, if it's very rigidly hierarchical through an, an individual or, or a small oligarchy, then as you mentioned, very quickly becomes corrupt yeah. or corrupted. Whereas if we see something like an authentic communist revolution, um, then it's then it's at least at first the largest class of humans taking these actions cooperatively, because and this is where sort of my um, connection between ecology and, and political ideology rests, I think, which is that we face a species level problem that can only be solved by species level cognition and action. This, for me, it harkens to your quote you always use from Einstein, that the problems we solved cannot be, or the problems we've created cannot be solved at the same level of thinking that created them, something like that. Right. Right. So right. that, so then if we introduce that and we sort of run with that a little bit, then, then I say, hell yeah, like there's stuff we could do. We could easily seize, <laughs> you look like you have a rear view mirror on your Yeah, forehead. something's <laughs> happened here. Oh, I know what it is. It's the sun going down. Oh, okay. Well, do, you want me, do you want me to adjust that? It doesn't matter to me if you think it'll go away soon or whatever. It'll it's go not away. Bothering you. It'll go away eventually. <laughs> okay. It's not yeah, bothering it like me. You have a cool halo. So I, I don't care. Okay. I'm the philosopher king, as, <laughs> as if you didn't know. Yeah, exactly. We'll put you in charge. Um, uh, wait, let me finish my thought. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so let's say. Yeah, let's say that it's, at least for me, what I would want is something like an eco-communist approach to what you were just suggesting. And then, then yes, then there become very simple things I think we can do, at least to improve people's lives, even if we set aside for the moment, sort of, quote unquote, solving the ecological problems that we face. Like, the construction, the mass construction of free public housing. One of the simplest things we could do with not very much money. Jeff Bezos could fund construction of public housing for all homeless people in the United States and still be by far the richest person on earth. So let's expropriate his wealth and maybe guillotine his ass while we're at it. Um, and, well, and so much for the beneficent despot. Yeah, well, my my mercy has limits. Um, <laughs> That's why you're not going to be it. <laughs> probably, sorry, probably not. But you know, I'll be one of the Morlocks under the <laughs> subterranean. Um, but I was thinking of the time machine. You know, the Eloy and the Morlocks. I don't know if H.G. Wells, maybe too random of a reference for you. What's the What's the book? 
the, the, the time story. machine by H.G. Oh, Wells. Okay, it's a futuristic yeah. uh, uh, world where the Eloy live on the surface and they're like naively innocent, like food is just provided to them and things like this. And all the while there's this enormous underclass literally toiling in caves beneath the surface and they can only come out at night and they, they're the ones that are providing, you know, for the paradise, for the Eloy, the ignorant Eloy. That's my recollection. I haven't read it since I was like 12, but um, anyway, <laughs> what was I saying? Yeah. So yeah. So free public housing, these are, these are real things that could be implemented in short order that will improve the quality of people's lives, no matter how bad like uh, climate and ecological circumstances become humans as long as we exist, we'll always need to have our basic needs met, right? Right. So if that's where you're, you know, going with this, then yeah, that's that's one thing I can think of. Uh, I think that's an interesting idea. So I want to pick up on that and then go back to the bene beneficent despot. Yeah. Um, in Phoenix, I don't remember how extensive the program was but they moved homeless people off the streets and gave them their own apartments. Uh, and again, I, I'm not sure, I'm not saying this is all the homeless in, in Phoenix. It was some, it was some section of the city with some portion of the people uh, who were homeless and they were given their apartments and the uh, public officials quickly discovered that most of these people were then back on the streets. Mm. And they, and I think this is an incredibly important point. They said to them, what are you doing? Why would you prefer living on the street to living in your own apartment? And they said, because our community is in the street right. and not just our community, the people who help us know where we are when we're on the street. We know who they are. The people who provide uh, health care, who provide some kind of aid, who provide food. These are people they've come to know and come to trust. And when you move them into an apartment building, they're not there anymore. So now the people don't know where to go. So their sense of community, however, however warped you might think that's that community is, it's their community. It, it, and it's the it's a trust they've built up with the people who interact with them over the weeks and months and years that they lived on the street. So you build the housing, but then you also create the infrastructure for their health and well-being. Just yes. what you were saying, you provide their basic needs, their health care, dental care, food supply, clothing, uh, mental health issues. All of that has to be, uh, has to be accommodating for I, them. I agree. So would yeah. you prefer then... Or did you have something else? I was well, I was just going to say this. Okay. This brings me back to the benevolent despot. Yeah, if yeah. we were talking about a person who had in some, in some way not only come to know the good, but embodied the good and could only be good and could only act against goodness through ignorance, which had been in, for this person eradicated, that person for me, I could trust. <laughs> any, any group of people will be a step down from that. Now, if you were then to say to me, all the people you can imagine in, in the oligarchy, the few, right. 
uh, who are ruling are of this nature. I'd say, well, maybe, but Plato, for example, didn't say, he recognized there would be other people who could be philosopher kings and philosopher queens, but he said, look, pal, it's one at a time. <laughs> and I think that's for some reason, but anyway, so uh, it, it's ironic given my, what we talked about in our first encounter that I describe myself as an unreconstructed, unapologetic, thorough Democrat, small d Democrat. And yet here I am talking about a philosopher king or a philosopher queen. <laughs> well, but yes. in the, under the extreme circumstances, I would be more trusting of that person than of a group because I fear the, the iron law of oligarchy, yeah. right, which I think was Robert McKell's who said that any organization of any size is going to have is going to have to uh, confront the iron law of oligarchy that people will rise up for their own reasons and the organization no matter in, how it's constructed will eventually devolve into we'll oligarchy into, into right? an oligarchy right where a few will rule but that, uh, that's the, that's Plato too right the uh, metamorphosis of the constitutions that he goes through in book eight I think right and and but until you get to the philosopher king the philosopher yeah. who the philosopher who can be king right. and philosopher here is uh, as you know, for me, it's not someone who has thought his way to answers to all problems. It is a person who has uh, come to realize the nature of being and come right. to understand uh, how that can be lived out and how that can be effectuated among populations of people. But right. yeah. it's not necessarily and, the smartest person on earth. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's right. It's not Einstein. Right. Or it's I not, guess it could be, but, you know, it's, it could be. But but the, but uh, under different different circumstances. Now, the, the fictional part of this, of course, is, well, who is going to determine that this person is is worthy to rule and is, is truly in Plato's sense a philosopher? Right. How is that going to be determined? Who judges that? Right. Uh, custodia et ipsos custodes. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is, uh, yes, the, the grand problem. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, the only way you can imagine it is Jesus comes back to earth, but he's carrying fire. He's carrying thunderbolts, right? There are <laughs> right. people to be slain here. Well, the this is, yeah, this is what that image is something that has stuck with me since I read uh, White Crow stalking. I read the manuscript for your stalking White Crows when you talk about the righteous anger, I think, in there yeah. uh, for Jesus. And like, and that. I, I, so I agree with you. Like if you can marry, maybe the wrong word, merge <laughs> the God of the old Testament with the person of Jesus, those powers and, and temperaments, then maybe something like that could be the, the benevolent dictator you're seeking. <laughs> I'm not sure how the old Testament God got in here, but no, that, the wrath, the wrath of the yeah, old Testament God is what I'm yeah, thinking. Th of. That guy would be gone for me. I don't need any of that. The, <laughs> I know. The, the issue would be that the message of the new Testament is, hey. is love. And we talked about this, the last encounter, right? The message is love. Now, if you were, at a level of transcendental being, bringing with it wisdom and compassion at an unbounded infinite level. And that was your outlook for all persons. Then I think 
we might be getting somewhere. The wrath part only exists for the recalcitrant, but but can they be overcome by transcendental love? Well, I suppose that's the power. That has to be the power. So, and, but then um, that that veers back to what I said only half jokingly about guillotining Bezos, because is there a way in which you can conceptualize that as essentially righteous anger? You know, this these are. There's this quote by uh, Utah Phillips, I think at least it's attributed to him, where he says something like, uh, the planet isn't dying, it's being killed, and the people who are killing it have names and addresses. So what do you make of that? Is there a place for, or would you want to love Bezos to- To, to death. Yeah, to death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the issue is, can people be transformed through love? Yeah. I think we we recognize in our own lives that that is possible. Can can people through compassion and kindness and love um, come to some realization about th the nature of human interaction and their own internal dynamics? I think that they can. I, I don't have a sufficient fount <laughs> to spew that out endlessly and in any effective way, but my benevolent dictator does. <laughs> so well, the, so is Bezos unredeemable? Wait, this kind of goes back to what we talked about in the last encounter about the nature of counter of the nature of a cancel culture. Right. Can, can people be redeemed? Yeah. Can they seek redemption? And can we, can we help them with that? Uh, if Bezos cannot be redeemed, if he is, is irredeemable as a person, then maybe ending his life in this form, because as you know, I think life continues, right. but in this form, is that the only recourse? I happen to think it's not, yeah. uh, but Utah Phillips, I have no idea who that guy is. He's just like a folk singer or something. I'm, I mean, not just, he's a, but he's known in the environmental okay. movement. I mean, he's not, he's the Woody Guthrie for the current era. Something like that. He's older. He might even be dead. I don't know. I really only know that quote and a hand and maybe one or two other quotes from him that I've seen floated yeah. around. Yeah, but, I'm not I'm not seeking retribution. I'm seeking I'm seeking transformation. So for right. me, for me, it's okay. Let, let's put it this way. If we could, this is where I was really headed with this. If okay. we could do it, do we have the policies and plans in mind that could be implemented that would make life better for all beings on the planet. Yes. I think that it's out there because just as we were saying, we know there's, there is sufficient amounts of food. We just don't get it to people. Right. I mean, the, you know, having lived in New York city, the amount of food that's wasted daily is criminal. Yeah. It's criminal. I saw a statistic just the other day. I want to say 40%, something like 40% of food is wasted in the United States. Uh, it, 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 it was mind boggling. Yeah, it's criminal. So I understand that the desire to, to find people responsible, take them out and line them up against the wall. I understand that. That's what <laughs> revolutions are about. Right. But so I'm just asking the question, do we have the, the policies and programs in mind that we could then implement? How could they be implemented? And I think the response is, well, they couldn't be unless you had someone with Hobbes's overarching, overweening power. Yeah, right? that's what I was just thinking of. But, but then could that be, could that take a slightly different form? 
So instead of the Leviathan with the, with the saber, you know, on the frontispiece or whatever for Hobbes, if we stick with like the idea of a Jesus type figure, could it be something that is just, it's overawing, overawing, you know, Yeah. yeah, rather than, I mean, terrible, frightening and terrible, whatever, but peaceful, just like when you see this figure, you know, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to go along with him, you know? Uh, it's, and in fact, okay. I want to go along with him. Yeah. Okay. So you, you described it as slightly different. Well, that's from Hobbes. No, it's hugely different from Hobbes, right? He's holding, <laughs> and the frontispiece of, of the original Leviathan, he's holding the, the, for those of you who don't know this, it is a picture of the king. The king is massively huge because his body is composed of individual beings, his subjects. Right. And not and just so, massively huge, like hundreds of feet, like a yes. skyscraper. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you imagine all the people in his uh, principality, kingdom, society are all, comp- are, 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 all constitute his body. So they're tiny in comparison to him. And he's holding two <laughs> things. First, he's got a crown on his head. Fuck that. Right. Second, he's holding a sword and a scepter. Right, right. right. One is a symbol of, of ruling which is only effective because of this symbol in the other hand, which is the sword. Right. Right. And so Hobbes says he has a sword that overawes all other swords. Right. Right. It's bigger than anybody else's sword. No one can, <laughs> can fight against him. And the and hope whoever is. Whoever holds it uh, just automatically has the power. Automatically right? has the power just... and, and is exempt from all laws. Right. So like Leviathan is, is free of all laws. He can make laws that will, that will control you, but not himself because he's Leviathan. And then Leviathan says, of course, the sensible thing to do is you fight against this because come on, who's going to live in this? So, so yes. So for me, the power isn't forceful. It's transformational. And here's where we get back to the psychedelics. <laughs> right. If this power, if this person with this power could zap into you and say, I'm going to give you a psychedelic trip because you're a fuck up. <laughs> Rory, I'm yeah, going to start a with a bad trip and then I'm going to transpose that into a delightful trip. And then I'm going to say, you can live this way. This can be you. Right. And you come out of that trip, the feeling of the afterglow you felt. And maybe that's the equivalent of Huxley's Soma, right? <laughs> that you get a zap of this, uh, of this, but it's, it's a way of awakening. It's a way of expanding right. your, what Huxley says, cleansing the doors of perception or well, expanding your consciousness that's elevating where I and think, expanding it yeah i think that's that's if we start thinking of it that way instead of like you know jesus bursts into the room and injects you with mescaline or something like, right you know right. forcibly like in, if we just think of it as a systematic program for transforming and elevating as you were saying consciousness right one important component of which will include the proper administration of psychedelics. Right. Because it's, that's at the very least, those are accelerants for what we're talking about. Right. Now, as we also talked about last encounter, uh, you and I are both working our way back toward Maslow's hierarchy needs, uh, uh, hierarchical needs, needs hierarchy. Yep. And uh, he, he, as we, talked about he generates this idea of the uh, plateau where you have peak experiences 
uh, coming either so quickly or never ending so that you reach a plateau where that plateau is a new level of consciousness for you, a new level of being. Okay, so imagine that we can figure out ways of not just moving people through the hierarchical levels, uh, needs levels, but we can help accelerate that movement. And psychedelics could be one way. And then that, that then uh, moves from psychedelics into a kind of uh, meditative practice. Yeah. where you do things which we know are mind expanding and mind elevating. So maybe they come in conjunction, right? So you, you're back and forth with psychedelics and meditation. Well, then uh, would you suggest that this should be, because when you're articulating this, I'm thinking this is what schools should be now, <laughs> basically. Bingo. This is what our education system should be. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I, I, yeah. So, okay. So, I mean, so much is pouring out of my head now at this yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so, the needs hierarchy, for those of you who don't know Maslow's needs hierarchy, it begins with the basic human needs, you, what he calls your uh, safety, need, no, not safety needs. What are the first Security. Ones? Security. Maybe security and safety. So these are the basic basic human needs: food, shelter, clothing, um, and, and security. And, bring it up. and then you move up to uh, belonging needs, where you have uh, uh, love relationships, social interactions with people. You live in community; community becomes important. These are belonging needs. Then you move beyond belonging needs to uh, is it self actualization? Is that the next stage? I'm looking at, uh, this is from Wikipedia. The bottom is phys uh, physiological needs, food, water, et cetera, then right. safety needs. Okay. Right. Uh, then belongingness and love, then esteem, social esteem. Okay, social esteem. And then finally, self-actualization. Okay, self-actualization. Then he packs on beyond that. I think this is later in his, in his life. He packed on uh, self-transcendence. Yeah. Where we move beyond the, the notion of a separate self uh, into a, a sense of uh, connection with all things, unboundedness and all of that. Right. Okay, so if there were a person who could guarantee our movement through these stages uh, and what we needed at e each stage, then okay. But where we are now is that Rory and I are talking about systems that can be put in place that would help humans traverse this pyramid of needs because it's a pyramid because Maslow says, you know, the, every, every human being needs the physiological needs met. Every human being needs security and safety needs met. Every human being needs beyond belongingness and every human being needs esteem or dignity or respect. However you want to translate the term esteem, every human being Every human being needs all of these levels, but they aren't available in all societies. And some people aren't uh, capable of moving through these in all societies. Okay, where is a place that focuses on the idea of bringing human beings along from very basic needs up through the hierarchy all the way to self-actualization? Schools, right? Schools, schools. Should schools introduce, as we're going along, psychedelics? Absolutely, they should. <laughs> Guaranteed. In yeah. Fact, the, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm reminded of an article I read recently on uh, maps. 
I forget what that stands for. It's one of the psychedelic. Yeah, that's right. Research. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah. it was, I, I don't remember this person's specialty, but he was, you know, some sort of neuroscientist or something. And he wrote this article about how he and his wife gave their 16 year old daughter, I think, uh, MDMA. And they did it. Well, but this is to your point about introducing psychedelics in schools. They did it in a very controlled way. Uh, and there was preparatory work up to that point. There was post integration stuff, et cetera. But he articulated a, a vision that I think we probably both would agree with about the role and purpose of that experience for uh, his child yeah. in, a, in, a, in a holistic, you know, educational way. And yeah, I, I, it was compelling to me. My my hesitation was not over the experience; it was over the drug used. Oh, MDMA I, as opposed yeah, to yeah, as opposed to something that's a little more involved with um, mind expansion. I mean, the MDMA, also known on the street as Molly, <laughs> it is. Um, something that will enhance your your sense of your sort of emotional sense uh, right your sense of love it, the, it has um i was going to say it's it's a form of speed it is it's a stimulant it, yeah if it's mixed with uh yeah you can have pure mdma but yeah. then it's at least on the street it's often mixed with amphetamines amphetamines and so that's why you know people dance all night at, at right. raves um so I don't know that that would be the, the drug that I would choose, but what I was, what I'm focusing on that you said that I think is really important is that the, uh, the child was 16. We have lost something fundamental in our culture. And that is the, the sense of ritual. Right. And especially the ritual where we move from childhood to adulthood and 16 seemed to be about the right age now of course this brings up matt gates and his <laughs> his uh depraved behavior with a 17 year old whom i still consider to be a juvenile but i'm not going to get into all that but yeah uh, that whole uh, yeah i yeah, just but, i can't <laughs> yeah right so okay so we have but 16 uh seems to be a good age because in in other cultures there are rituals for moving boys and girls into manhood and womanhood. We've lost that. You know, the native Americans have the vision quest. Yep. Uh, other cultures have all, all kinds of rituals and the ritualistic lack in our society means that there are no delineations for us. That would be a perfect, I'm not suggesting we introduce psychedelics into elementary school. What I'm <laughs> saying is that there, there is a moment when we want, we want, students who have formed some ego identity to understand the power of it, but also the fragility of it. Right. And I think that that's, uh, that's the time for the introduction of psychedelics in exactly the way you said it in, in an almost therapeutic setting. Yes. Uh, where there are guides who are familiar with this, where the set and setting, as we talked about last encounter are important. 
Uh, but it would become ritualized. It would become something that every student in this school would do at some point. It would be their own vision quest, literally their vision quest. Right. That's their senior project. <laughs> that's, that's one of them. Right? right. And they would all go through it and they all, all have that experience. Now, would they do it together as a group? That's a possibility. Although this is such an individual trip. You know, an LSD, for those of us who in the 60s and 70s, uh, it, used it not experimentally but recreationally this would be this would be a controlled experiment uh to have people undergo a vision quest in this new way uh, yeah that's interesting you raised a couple of things first i would just say i actually think that mdma is an ideal first first introduction to psychedelics mm. because it's not as um sort of jarring and perhaps effective for the inner work that you were talking about. Oh, maybe that's words, too, it's too soon. For yeah. That. I think yeah. if you had, because it's almost impossible to have a bad time on MDMA. Um, and especially if you go out of your way to construct, uh, you know, to establish a good set and setting like this, the person I was talking about, like they did it. He, the, the daughter took it on the beach with her family members uh, the, she was the only one that took it. They were yeah. sober and, you know, they just hung out basically and bonded. So but yeah, then I was thinking, that's a really good point. That's a really, really good point. I hadn't, I hadn't considered that. And particularly what you were saying earlier about ways that you could actually uh, use MDMA, what the, what the formula would be for creating this, this experience. You wouldn't need the high dose of amphetamines. Right. Uh, you would just you cut that sense. out. Just pure yeah. MDMA. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. And then, but then when you're thinking about schools or institutionalizing this in some fashion, then that also, that's, carries... that's actually me howling. If you can hear it, <laughs> can you hear the howling? I, I hear the howling. Yeah. Well, that's my, that's my inner self <laughs> barking. Yep. Okay. I've settled down now. The MDMA is taking effect and I'm mellow. No, Canine I'm mellow. MDMA is what we need now. <laughs> Uh, I give my cat CBD uh, for his anxiety. <laughs> Does it work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, veterinarian recommended it to me. And in fact, they make special CBD treats for cats. Um, it helps a lot. He has sort of separation anxiety because I'm always at home with him, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, but yeah, the so when we're thinking about institutionalizing this process in something like a school, then that reinforces for me the choice of MDMA as a first exposure, because I think it could be done in a group setting, although then you're, then you run the risk of a lot of teenage pregnancies. Yeah. But, uh, well, they, yeah, it would have to be, it would be therapeutic. Right. If it's well right. administered and well administered, and, right, right. <laughs> you know, then there could be this bonding effect that it, because you, you're still going to get your dipping your toe in deconstructing your ego, but you're not going to experience ego death on MDMA. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, you have this intense bonding experience with your comrades, which could help facilitate solidarity and things like this that would carry over in significant ways, political and otherwise. And then I was thinking, okay, so maybe we do that junior, sophomore year, let's say, right? The, then well, senior year, acid or mushrooms <laughs> or both, or ayahuasca, something that's going to knock them off their asses, right? And really uh, 
promote that inner work and that and something approximating ego death. Yeah, well, yes. I don't know that we want to go so far as to induce <laughs> ego death, but okay, maybe that's it, too much. But <laughs> but but I mean that may not be that may well not be controllable. That maybe the researchers can control it. And sure. you can bring people, uh, you can ease people on their journeys, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe a low just, dose mushrooms. Low do, yeah, so you you want them to have a sense of, uh, of the unboundedness, or the possibilities, that lie beyond, just your individual self. And I think that I think that's uh, that would come out there. But I like the idea, of that. That's the real graduation. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the graduation ceremony. Yes, yes, you'll get your diploma. Yes, isn't that fine? But the real ceremony, kids, comes later when we do this uh, renewed vision quest in in a different sense. And in fact, maybe it's not even graduation; it's it's dropping out, as Timothy Leary might say. Well, that right? might be up to them, right? But the graduation is from uh, where you are to where you could be, right? Or maybe that's too dramatic. You could say where you are in a new light where you think you are now that is not all of you yes here's more of you and to uh, what you were saying about the rite of passage idea i think that is very salient because you're getting a a, a peek right a sneak peek it's like wow right. there's a lot more out there and like i'm now entering into this and i'm it's going to be a different world you know i'm a different kind of person now something like that yeah as yeah. you transition from a, a child to an adult. Yes. Well, the good news, the good news is that we've moved off of the benevolent despot <laughs> and, and, and into an institution where there is such promise of growth uh, and possibility. <laughs> yeah, know. but then the principle comes into play, right? <laughs> Maybe well, he's the benevolent despot. Yeah, the, the, this is going to have to be a, a pretty savvy principle. This is going to have to be you. This is this is your, <laughs> your mission. This is what you have to do. Yeah, start the first psychedelic school. Uh, yeah. Sure well, I remember won't. that would just be a small part. I mean, I I honestly think that. Oh yeah. You could you could build on this idea about Maslow's needs hierarchy, uh, and just to make sure that students students all through are accompanied all the way through this hierarchy until graduation, right? Until they are on their own, but they're never now on their own, right? Part of what they've learned is they, through the bonding experience, they have mates, right? They have comrades, right? They have friends. Uh, these are people who have uh, a, a deep cohesive bond with them now. And then there, but then there's the exploration of the self beyond that comes beyond the, the boundaries of the, of the uh, collective, right? Where the collective becomes even more expansive. Right. So expanding right. beyond the school to the city, to the state, to the world. Right. So, so you have, you have your family unit, you have, then you have your friends, you have your belongingness needs met, but then you begin to see that there are networks of people beyond that. Right where you're, you're so respect, esteem, all of that is it grows out of the lower stages, grows out of the environment in which you find yourself. But now there's a huge environment out there of, as you said, neighborhood, community, state, or society, cosmos, or world cosmos. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and your and the hope would be if this program is well constructed that once they are ready to exit the smaller community then at the same time they're entering that larger community right like yeah very consciously yeah. like yeah not yeah well i'm tempted i'm tempted to say that i would like this to be not k through 12 <laughs> but k through college 25 when the brain stops developing yeah, you know? yeah. so you but my hesitation with that is the the fear that we're we're just extending the incubator that yeah. we're we're allowing we're not allowing for the the dramatic confrontations that will occur between the organism and the environment yeah. right? so in other words if I don't want to say that this is a cocoon but uh, but you want as long as this school if it's k through college or K through 25, <laughs> as long as the uh, school, you, Rory, understand that there has to be a component always at every level of getting people out into the community and then right. understanding that community goes from your neighborhood, then to your city or your greater environment, then to maybe your region, then to your, your society or your country, then beyond that into the world that there are always ways that you are sending them out right into these communities yes uh, for experience and growth i uh, could what were you gonna say no i was just gonna say and it could be k through 25 yeah right yeah and it, and it could also shift throughout you know uh the facilities or the arrangements could shift so in other words you're not necessarily going to have the kindergartners living with the 24 year olds Although maybe under certain circumstances, you might, you know, some like uh, childcare could be an important aspect of this uh, program, you know, at least in some capacity. But yeah, yeah. In fact, I would, I think I would insist upon that. I don't know. I don't know these kids are going to be boring, but, <laughs> but, but they are at some point, right? Where they're going to be, there is going to be something after they graduate, right? Uh, some kind of college experience, but then you could have, uh, for, it seems to me at every level you want older kids working with, if not teaching younger kids. Yeah. Well, uh, and I think, I think that makes sense in many ways. And I've been thinking throughout this about your, um, this is sort of the, the developmental program that you lay out in your uh, take on civic education in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I have read multiple times because I, I like how succinct it is. Um, but the idea that the, that the youth, the younger ones are going to be essentially indoctrinated up until the point at which they can then turn around and scrutinize and criticize the values that they have sort of inherited from their elders, which could be the older students, or perhaps the older students are the ones helping them to scrutinize, because of course the younger ones are looking up at these cool older kids, right? Right. And they want to be like them, something like this. Yeah. And so that helps guide that process of sort of critical reflection on the values that they have uh, grown up with. And, and just in general, I've also like going beyond the psychedelics that we've been talking about. Um, like I, the, the school, it could be so much more. The psychedelics would just be one important part. But but my my take, my view is that schools 
should almost completely stop caring about teaching content, certainly in the manner in which it's done today for standardized testing. Yeah. Throw it, just stop, stop yeah. all of it. Stop it all. <laughs> can, can I inter, interject yeah, something ahead. here? Okay. I, I'm only going to uh, pause here or pause you because I want to make sure that viewers and listeners aren't suddenly either distracted by or put off by your comment that at some point early on in my <laughs> view of civic education, there's a level of indoctrination. Right. Okay. Clarify. Okay. Yeah. So, so if you, if you mean, or if a listener or viewer means by indoctrination, that there's some body of content that is being poured into these students, that's not what I'm saying. The only doctrine would be a set of thinking tools that students would not simply be given, but would be, but would, but would work with. So imagine elementary school kids where you think, well, there has to be a body of information that you give to them. And my reaction to that is no, there isn't. What no. there are are tools that allow them to excavate the kinds of information that they're receiving and want to receive. So this goes back to John Dewey at the base level of elementary school, what generates the kids learning is their own questioning. They raise questions. Why are there stars? Well, okay. let's think about what those are and, and whatever level they can handle the input. That's what you give them. You give them information. Now, if that's the indoctrination part, that's okay. The second part of the indoctrination then is to say, in order to answer the questions you're asking, you need to be able to do some, you need to know some thinking processes. We call those uh, experiences with language. Can you, can you use language? Can you control your language? There's some elementary mathematics you might need to know here, that sort of thing. But it's always driven by what the students asking of you the teacher, not what you are telling them they need to do. And then that builds up to what exactly what you were saying, Rory, which is the very last thing you want to be doing is saying to kids, here is a test that somebody other than you, somebody other than your classmates, somebody other than your teacher has created of information that you ought to know. And by the way, nobody administering this test cares how you get to the answers. They just want the answer. That's an abandonment of education. That's the complete betrayal of education. Right there, right? Where yeah. you're not saying to them, tell me how you got the answer. It's, it's yeah, it's horrific. I mean, standardized testing and the, it's- The worst. It's just, uh, it's antithetical to education is what yeah. it is, as you were just saying. And- um, yeah, I was also, I think, um, I was thinking especially of like the virtues and values that the younger kids would be quote unquote indoctrinated with, without understanding, uh, alternatives or necessarily why these are the virtues or values that they should hold. And then later through the development of 
critical thinking, turning around and reflecting upon those and, and digging beneath them to the level of principles, right? right. So that they can cultivate yeah. judgment, yeah. you know? So just adding, that's an addendum to what you were just saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. There will, there will be ages where you want to present them with content. You want to present them with information that they themselves haven't generated. Right. Um, this, this might be, uh, how you understand, we understand a, a classic education, but you want them to have some notion of geography and history uh, and literature, which you then use as a source of information for them to then scrutinize, right? to then examine in a critical way, because they have now, they have been using those critical skills since they were first graders, right? or maybe even before that, I don't know. So nothing is new other than uh, they may be generating questions about texts that you give them. Uh, and that's okay with me. Right. right. They're not going to be writing every text. They're not going to be writing history, right? They need, they, uh, they need some body of content to react to. Right. Right. So when I was saying earlier to eliminate content, I didn't mean, I didn't truly mean to eliminate all content but rather the idea that sort of the structure and organization of education is about either memorizing or learning some particular content and regurgitating it in some particular way, et cetera, et cetera, especially to satisfy what I think Dewey, Dewey calls exter external authorities, right? right? So yeah. the, the folks at Pearson that are receiving... Right millions of dollars from the education department or whatever there's this revolving door to construct this whole thing you know right standardized right. testing apparatus so but but i but i very sincerely my cat is trying to sabotage the podcast um where's that cbd force, yeah. feed, force feed that cat he needs a dose um the i yeah i very sincerely do believe that especially in light of the uh, you know existential planetary circumstances that we were discussing earlier, and and you see this borne out with some of the rhetoric from you know for example Greta Greta Thunberg, where her whole thing was the school strike was because this school is fucking pointless, <laughs> you know yeah. the school does not map on to the reality in which she and her peers and especially the generation under her are going to be exiting school and entering into, or, or indeed already exist within while they are in school. So drop all that shit and instead cultivate the students' basic needs in a, in a deep sense, right? So, you know, which is stands in stark contrast to the sort of debt servitude that we see where elementary school students are, you know, uh, can't, can't move on to the next grade or whatever because they owe lunch money. You know, I'm sure you've seen these stories like that students can get in debt for their lunch uh, that they purchase at the school. Uh, it's just insane. So yeah, instead, and I, and I know that the, that uh, school authorities are denying them meals, food, right? Because they haven't paid their debt. Yes, that's the real issue. Yes, and yeah. so instead, go in completely the opposite direction. Provide robust meals breakfast and lunch, and perhaps an after-school meal for those that need it or want it, and, and build out the, 
the whole school around the satisfaction of the students' basic needs from yeah. the bottom of the pyramid to the top. And for, and as I say, forget about all content in the sense of, of course, certain basic capacities should be realized, literacy, basic arithmetic, and however we want to define basic, et cetera. But the idea that, uh, that the students must take certain subjects, must demonstrate demonstrate proficiency in those subjects, whatever the fuck that means. Instead, focus on cultivating critical thinking, empathy, uh, and fulfilling those basic needs in a, in a deep way. I think otherwise, we should just abolish schools, either, either transforming them into something like that or abolish them altogether. Because as they exist now and, and as they, the trajectory that I see them on, especially for minority students in urban settings, they're essentially, you know, it's no longer the school to prison pipeline. It's just the prison to prison pipeline. It's a carceral system, in my view, uh, that that should be abolished if it's not going to be transformed into something like what what we were describing. Yeah, I don't know if you would go that far, but that's my position. Well, as you as you may know, there was a movement in the 70s called the de-schooling movement. Uh, right. Ivan Illich was the one of the troubadours for the de-schooling movement. But it was everybody, and there were other other movements around this whole idea that schools, going back to Paul Goodman, right? Um, there that schools are places where learning doesn't occur. Right? <laughs> learning occurs, and it's hard to believe, but their children children are actually curious, and they learn in all sorts of ways. But schooling is a way of tamping that down. Stick them <laughs> in a desk, keep them there. Don't let them move around. Right. Uh, but what I was going to say is profoundly one of the dehumanizing, profoundly dehumanizing. Exactly. One of the aspects we have to recognize here, and this may very well go along with your idea about abolishing schools, is that schools are community centers. These are not places where you send the kids where they're isolated from from all adults except for uh, administrators, teachers, staff and in Fort law enforcement. Right. They, they, they're community centers. Community members should be moving in and out of these. Kids should be moving in and out of these. They should be all kinds of programs, as I was saying earlier, about reaching out to the community, getting kids out into the community. How do people live? Right. right. And then also seeing that schooling doesn't end when the kid leaves the school that, that goes on at home. You want, you want the home life to reinforce education and you, you want to encourage parents to come into schools and teachers and administrators to go into parents' homes, not, not as a policing exercise, but, to, but again, to make sure that, that the needs are being met. Uh, but, but school should be a friendly place for the community. Right? Yes. Uh, as I said, they, there should be community members in and out of the school. It should be a very, it should be a, a fluid place. Now I'm not saying, yes, the fear will be, yes, but strangers with AK-47s are going to be coming into the school. They already yes. do. <laughs> yeah, we're not stopping that anyway. Yeah. Uh, I went went back to my, my high school uh, oh. unannounced. <laughs> I was uh, in, I was, I worked for a foundation, uh, the Interactivity Foundation in, in uh, Parkersburg, West Virginia. And the fastest way for me was to fly in, in, from Phoenix to Pittsburgh and then drive down to Parkersburg. When I came back, 
to go to Pittsburgh to fly out, I had a lot of time. So I went back to Sewickley. When was this recently? This was no, this, well, I was still teaching. So this was probably uh, 2012, something like that. Oh, okay. So I go back to, first I I go back to Sewickley and it was like Dorothy landing in Munchkin, Munchkinville. <laughs> right. Suddenly the building seemed so small and the, <laughs> the streets, everything seemed condensed. And I thought, how is it that I thought it was a hike to go walk from my school to my house when it really wasn't. But anyway, I went into the school to look around to see how it had changed. I was probably in there for 15 or 20 minutes wandering around someone asked you nobody stopped me <laughs> finally i went to the library yep. because i wanted to look up something i can't remember what it was and the librarian said in essence who the fuck are you and what are you doing here right right you creep and, and then she said this was very astute yeah she said oh and i said well i was a student here i was in the second graduating class wow and she said really she said, well, wow, what year would that have been? Let's go look at, get your yearbook because she uh, wanted to look me up. Verify. Very smart. Yeah. yeah very smart. Clever. But I'm wandering around in there. No one's stopping me. So when I suggest <laughs> that community members should be in and out of the school, I'm saying, look, if you see a stranger that nobody recognizes, <laughs> you got to say, hang on. Why are you here? Right. Right. Well, that speaks to, you know, the flip side of this, which is that schools, Schools are, are utterly devalued in society now, utterly devalued in yeah. every way imaginable. From they're, teacher holding, comp- they're holding pens. They're right. holding pens for kids. Exactly. From teacher compensation to the, to the yeah. building construction, on and on and on. Yeah. So, yeah, they're holding pens. They're glorified daycare, whatever, however you want to think about it. Now, of course, that's not obviously not what you and I know that schools can be. Um, but so... This is why I think there is a, at least some slight possibility of schools like we would like to see being created because the alternative, aka what currently exists, is so unbelievably bad. In fact, I, I would be curious to see if there is a significant resistance to sending students back to school once COVID is over. I'm sure many of them will go back. Uh, and probably even most, but I wonder if there will be a significant minority of, of what, you know, probably well-to-do parents who say, no, fuck that. My, my kid has been flourishing outside of this prison that he used to go to all the time. And instead, you know, they'll just participate in sports and see their friends in other capacities. I'm just saying I can imagine something like that happening because of how bad schools are. If you could, if you could arrange for students to continue a flourishing social life. I mean, let's be honest. One of the things about schools, which is not surprising, is that kids quickly learn classroom is one thing, but what we're really here for is social interaction. A lot of that is, <laughs> right. is hazing and bullshit yeah. uh, that you get in middle school and even in high school. But even there, you develop some relationships that are key for you as a person, the person you think you are, the person maybe you even want to be. Yes. That is the element that I think has been removed by this pandemic. I don't know that there is very much going on 
intellectually, cognitively, that these kids can't get at home. So if, if what you were saying, if you can continue with the social interaction through sports and dance and band, uh, other things you do that you can continue and you can still see your friends on a pretty regular basis, then I don't know that you need to go back to school. Uh, but the, but what people have missed is that social interaction. I mean, that's what I think is, has really hurt the kids. Definitely. Especially young kids who like, you yeah. know, literally need that for their develop their, their like Absolutely physiological right. development of their brain. Absolutely right. This you is know. the, yeah, this, this is something I think is so crucial that you just mentioned this idea that somehow the kid walks through the door and what, what he or she will get at school is some big bucket of content that's going to be poured into them right. somehow. The brain is elastic. The brain is developing through every experience and interaction. There isn't anything in the brain. There isn't any place in your brain where you put in intellectual content and then you put in emotional content and dynamics over here. Right. There's one that, shelf here, one shelf yeah, there. That is the way the brain operates. The, the brain is elastic. It, it, it is building neural networks and synapses all the time through every interaction. Those interactions are crucial. Right. You yes. have to have them to develop the brain. Yes. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, uh, and as you always emphasize, you know, your social setting and circumstances are, are so significant to your psychology and how you behave. Yeah. So in other words, just the, the physical act of leaving your home and going to another special place where you do certain things like that sort of ensemble of actions is hugely significant and cannot be replaced by zoom you know right now right. the instruction i think probably can be replaced by zoom the content so maybe we see a shift you know again if we're dreaming we see a shift away uh maybe we could redirect the paltry resources that are currently spent on education we abandon uh the school building per se, or some of the facilities, and instead direct that towards other social experiences for the students. In other words, we can save money. We could, you know, since money matters for funding from the state, et cetera, cut costs by reducing some of the infrastructure on paper, at least, and then allow for and organize certain social experiences that could be I don't know, camping trips in addition to organized sports and things like this. I'm just thinking out loud as a way, yeah. you know, as a path from here to there. <laughs> yeah. You, you, but you also want to include the, the intellectual component, the cognitive component where, where students are working together on some project of mutual interest, where oh, they're yes. asking a question about the, you know, this is Dewey's example. Is a, a child says, I, 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 want to, I want to dig my way to China. And the, the teacher says, oh, well, okay, let's go out and start digging. Yeah, here's so your the, shovel. <laughs> yeah, here's your shovel. You start digging. So well, what are you finding? Well, I'm finding uh, uh, Ignatius rocks. I'm finding dirt. I'm finding worms. I'm finding all these things. So what does that tell you? So there's learning all the way, but it's stimulated by the child. Okay, but there are other right. kids involved. You want that input. You want that interaction. Of course, as you know, I also create schools as places for democracy yes. uh, at all levels. But But I think you're... You have hit on something that's really significant, and that is not just looking at the schools as an institution, but looking at all of these separate 
even and mostly private institutions that we've got in this society, they all seem to be foundationally flawed, (laughs) that they need to be rethought. what whatever whatever it is what institution are you going into where you're sort of you're sort of leaving behind your community right this is a separate here's a silo for your learning it's called a school right. here's the silo for your worship it's called a church here's the silo for your your civic inter- engagement it's called a board meeting <laughs> or it's called yeah a council meeting they, they just seem to be uh separated and and unfortunately divided yes well in the same way then that we might uh when when we're speaking about individual psychological and and psychological development uh talk about you know uh, uh eliminating boundaries right between the self and other that should carry over to institutions right so if we have a society of cosmopolites or however we want to think about them then we maybe we would also expect those the boundaries you were just articulating between school and church etc to also melt away uh in a similar fashion you know yeah it would have to be it that would have to be thought about sure pretty carefully I, i think it was margaret mead who said you should put uh preschool and uh kindergarten nursery schools in old age homes <laughs> yeah yeah or in today would call them retirement communities right right but so that so that the, the there's no generational divide where suddenly our youth our youngsters our kids think that old people should have should be in some environment it's the equivalent of the old image of putting old people on ice flows <laughs> and sending them off You've yes. lived your life. Get out of the community now. <laughs> See ya. Yeah. They're out of sight, out of mind. Get them out. Right. That, they, 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 that old people would love it, would love the enthusiasm and dynamism of the young. Yes. And they could, the young could learn about the wisdom of the old. Right. Uh, but things like that. I don't care. I have a fire station in your school. I don't give a shit. I mean, <laughs> somehow you begin that life doesn't, is you're not protected from life by being in the building called a school. Yes. Again, it's the integration with the community that I think is fundamental and how you recreate that, how you, how you rebuild, reconstitute that I think is, uh, is well worth thinking about. And I think Rory and I are both focused on schools because we're educators right. have been, in your case will be uh, <laughs> educators. So it's, it's an institution that is not just important to us personally, but we see the effects it has because it begins with preschool uh, and goes all the way through, well, you hope lifelong learning. Yes. Yeah. Opportunities and, for learning. And I mean, education is such a, it's almost a, how should I put it? I mean, I'm thinking now, you know, of the of Plato and the Republic and whatnot. It's like education as a category is so amorphous. And so it's sort of applicable to everything and when you really get down to it, it's just about how we live our lives, you know, as Dewey always says, yeah. you know, education is not preparation for future living. It's living. It's living. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. Right. And that's, um, that's why you say you hope it, well, it, it, it's unavoidable that it's lifelong. Right. People may not think they're learning, but again, 
your organism interacts with the environment in important ways. And there's nothing you can do about that because those interactions have effects on your brain. The brain's not set, folks. <laughs> it, <laughs> especially, it keeps, especially not if you're eating mushrooms. <laughs> it's right. It keeps changing. Uh, listeners and viewers may be getting the sense that Rory and I can talk for a long time about education. <laughs> right. And that's true. We can. Uh, but I think we should bring this one to a close. Yeah, I think you're right. We're about at our two hour mark. Um, I'm trying to think if there was any final well, we can just pick up here. You know, there's a lot more to be said. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I did not mean to hijack the, the encounter by introducing the benevolent despot. No, but, that was perfect. But, but I thought it it worked, given where we were in the conversation and and uh, and maybe where we wanted to head or where yes. we did head. We'll pick up with this thinking next time, folks. For sure. Okay. See you, Jack. Rory, as always, rock the steep path. <laughs> Very carefully. <laughs> Well, mushrooms aren't a bad way.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>